It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today we have with us Vivian Shapira, MA, trained in clinical psychology and with personal experience in recovery from narcissistic abuse. She is co-director of Alexander Technique of Cincinnati, where she trains teachers of the Alexander Technique, which is a hands-on practice that retrains the neuromuscular system. She is also founder of Four Winds Academy for the Healing Arts and Sciences, and she holds a master's degree in psychology. Um, the Alexander Technique, and Vivian's going to tell us more in more detail, but just briefly, this is a wonderful reorganization of psycho physical dynamics that feels more relaxing than massage, yet it is a lesson that teaches mind and body wholeness. Hard to understand, but I'm sure uh, Vivian will clear all that up for you. Good morning, Vivian, and welcome. Hi, Randy. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and it's my absolute pleasure to talk about the Alexander Technique and surviving narcissistic abuse and all these different topics. They're very, very close to my heart. They're enmeshed inside me. And it's just such a pleasure to get this opportunity. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So I told you that I trained in the Alexander Technique and um, I did it for about six months. So I'm very familiar with it. But most many people do not know what this is. So can you give us a brief overview of what the Alexander Technique is? Yes, I can give you a brief overview, and it will be like watching paint dry in terms of the understanding, but I will do my best. (laughs) And the reason why the Alexander Technique is difficult to explain is because it's a kinesthetic experience. So in the same way as it's hard to explain to someone what music is if they can't hear music, or to explain to somebody this is how to ride a bicycle, these are not theoretical experiences. These are actual experiences. You're using your senses. So with music, you're using your sense of sound and your musicality, and that's what you're using to hear what music is and to experience music. Now, in the Alexander Technique, you're using your neuromuscular system, and you're getting a kinesthetic experience of how to change. Because what happens to us as we go through life is we get more and more tense, and this is from habitual patterns in our muscular system, in our neurological system, we, we are taught how to, it's inherent in us, I should say, that we learn to work automatically. And then in automatically, we also go wrong. And so the Alexander Technique helps people who can see, they look in the mirror and they say, I have terrible posture, or they are experiencing difficulty in performance, like playing the violin or the piano, or in an athletic endeavor, and the Alexander Technique can restore them to their more natural wholeness instead of being stuck 
with all those interfering patterns that are getting in the way. And of course, these interfering patterns come from what we do, but they also come via our emotions. So um, the Alexander Technique is named after F.M. Alexander, who was a Shakespearean actor, and he lived in Australia during the latter half of the 19th century. But um, from what I understand, he created this because his voice began to fall during performances. And so he, maybe you can explain better why um, F.M. Alexander developed this technique. Yes, and it's a very important story, Randy. Thank you very much for bringing that in because it's, it helps to understand what the technique is. So Alexander used to get up and perform these soliloquies, so he was the only actor on the stage. And that was exhausting his voice. And he actually lost his voice. So there he was, a very powerful soliloquist, Uh, delivering these amazing soliloquies and he lost his voice and he had to do something about it and he sat down and figured it out. He went, when I'm speaking normally in conversation, my voice is okay. When I begin speaking up on the stage, when I begin delivering the soliloquy, I lose my voice after a certain amount of time. Therefore, I am doing something during my soliloquy that's causing me to lose my voice. He took responsibility, something that all of us still have to learn to do for ourselves. And he set up a system of mirrors and he watched himself in order to detect what it was that he was doing that was interfering with his voice. And after a lot of watching himself in the mirror, it's quite a funny story, actually, when I think about what he did. But I've been equally crazy in what I've gone and done. But there he was, watching himself in the mirror very closely, at first could see nothing. And then he detected that just before he began to deliver the soliloquy, so just before he vocalized, he would pull his head back and down. So what is back and down is where your neck sort of arches backwards and your throat kind of gets exposed and your larynx gets exposed and you're actually shortening the neck. You're shortening the cervical spine and you're putting a lot of pressure actually on the larynx, which is your voice box, which you need to have in good condition if you're going to deliver a soliloquy. And so he detected the pattern, the psychophysical pattern, the neuromuscular pattern, you know, it's all, all of it is everything, but we're so limited in the English language to even have a word for the one unit that is body-mind. And so Alexander had to use the word self instead because there was no word for the body and mind as one thing, as one entity. We have this dualism, always splitting things up, and that's in our language, and we can't get around it, so then we have to think that way. Anyway... That's what he detected, that he was pulling his head back and down. This was putting pressure on his larynx. Therefore, he was losing his voice. Now, that was the first insight. But, of course, that doesn't cure the problem. And insights don't cure the problem. You have to take them into action. And he did. He had to teach himself how to stop. And the word, the technical word is inhibit. He had to teach himself how to stop or inhibit the pulling the head back and down. And therein lies the tale of the Alexander Technique because that is what's very, very difficult to do. 
is to change a pattern once it has been established. Anyway, that, in a nutshell, how to inhibit, how to stop doing what you don't want to do anymore. That is the key. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and it is hard to visualize. Um, we're talking today about your book, Guided Lessons for Students of the Alexander Technique. And um, in this book, you actually show all the different positions, what, how to do it wrong, how to do it right. So uh, if someone wants to learn how to do this, they certainly can pick up a copy of the book and begin to practice this. Um, it's, it's easier if you are working with a, uh, a teacher of the Alexander Correct. Technique. But, um, but just it's for people, mm-hmm, it is much better. So but I have said, videos as well. I have made okay. videos and put them on YouTube so that people have got something uh, visual to look at and understand with the instructions that I kind of go with the book. And I'm actually going to make a full series of videos to go with the book so that people can see what I'm talking about. And, and that means that then people could travel. Like if they can't get an Alexander teacher where they live, they can still learn about the principles of the Alexander Technique, and there's a lot they can do to help themselves. And then if they're traveling and they go somewhere where there is an Alexander teacher, they can get a lesson and experience what it's like for the teacher to help them find the new way, because that's what we do as Alex. actually give people the experience, because the problem is, it's like if you have a ruler and your ruler is only 11 inches long, and then you think that's a foot and you keep measuring everything, everything's that much off because the instrument that you're using is not working the way you want it to. And that's the advantage of having a teacher is that you get the input and you don't have to struggle inside your own loop of being. And so that outside input is very significant and helpful of giving the experience. But that doesn't mean that there isn't value in helping yourself. And every teacher knows that there's what you learn with the teacher and that that is, can only be done with a teacher, but there's also your homework and what you do for yourself. And it's 50% of the story and it's a very, very important 50%, obviously. So there is a lot yeah. that people can do for themselves and I am trying to get that kind of information to be more and more accessible for people. And I know that my teacher would move my body in different ways um, to relieve certain things as I was um, laying on my back. So she she was able to manipulate my body very gently to uh, make some changes. Yeah, I think you make a good point because we should describe how an Alexander lesson is done. So I'm a classical teacher. I teach in the traditional method that was kind of set up by Alexander. And so I use a chair and I help people at the beginning of the appointment. I help people from standing to sitting and sitting to standing. And as they're going, I'm realigning them and I'm putting this input in. And there's two kinds of input. The one is teaching the neuromuscular system to stop the pattern that you want to inhibit. Okay. And the other is to direct correctly for what you do want. So the teacher does that on behalf of the, of the student and then the student's neuromuscular system is learning the patterning and starts to take it on together with learning the cognitive aspect, which is the consciousness 
of the Alexander Technique, which actually for me is the most powerful part, is what the Alexander Teacher Technique teaches us about our consciousness. Because what the technique is about is about being conscious of being a conscious being and to harness that consciousness for our own good. You know, so many people, we're conscious, we're intelligent, but we find it hard to apply it to our own lives. And that has been one of the greatest gifts for me with the Alexander Technique. And you said that your, um, you had poor posture that came, came about because your mother had narcissistic borderline personality disorder. And so this is really interesting because you said you could explain, um, you know, how the mental and physical health impact of being brought up by somebody with NPD affect your posture. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So, um, so let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about what you, ex- you know, how it affected your body and how you were able to change it. Yes, I was, I was a very, very shy child. My mother was just an absolute bulldozer. You know, I have to admit, I feel guilty when I talk poorly of my mother because this was the bad mixture for me as, as a child. My mother was an excellent character. She was an excellent character, with, and she was a social worker, and she helped a lot of people, and she was really good at her job. But unfortunately, she also had narcissistic borderline personality disorder. Not that I as a child knew that, but what I did know was I was scared of her, and I didn't like her. And I was a very sad and miserable child. I, you know, I, my first experience of depression was when I was eight years old. I remember distinctly getting this horrible, strange sensation inside the middle of my chest and just feeling awful and not knowing what that could possibly be. And we were, I was outside in the playground at school and I, I just suddenly, it felt like the bottom was dropping out of my world and I was only eight. And I, I was just a miserable, tense child. And it showed up in my posture. My, my shoulders were under my ears. Literally, Randy, my neck had disappeared by the time I was a teenager. I had no neck. I just, if you looked at me from the front, you'd see my chin in front of my torso. You wouldn't be able to see anything of the front of my neck at all, or even the sides. And my shoulders were so hunched up. And I was in the most miserable physical state. If you touched my body, I jumped because I was in so much pain from the time I was a little girl. My body was so sore from this and racked with all this tension, which turned into uh, uh, fibromyalgia. I had terrible fibromyalgia. I had um, um, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, terrible. I didn't know. I was every day, oh, my stomach's so sore. My, my tummy's so sore. It was terrible. And I had migraine headaches every single day. I had headaches every single day. And the thing is, one is so innocent of what's actually going on. I remember reading when I was 18 years old. And so I was already in this condition from age eight. When I was 18 years old, I read somewhere that headaches are caused by a bad relationship with the mother. And I thought, oh, what nonsense. I wasn't even aware that there was something really odd with my mother because I just thought all mothers were like that which is very you know strange that's how it is for people that grow up in a household they don't know what's normal 
So I had a very unusual family, very talented, very amazing, but full of personality disorder. And uh, I like to think that I don't have a personality disorder, and I, and I have every reason to think that I don't. But the other three members of my family did, and it was awful. And it showed up in my body in this intense pain, this fibromyalgia, and just this ghastly posture that everybody, everybody would comment on. Nobody thought it wasn't their business because that's how bad it was. I was like a ball woman. Instead of being able to stand up at my full length, I was completely crunched over. And, and you say it called the, you call it the gorilla? Called the gorilla because of what I looked like. Yeah. People used to call me, my brother called me Magilla Gorilla. And then other people, I mean, this one boy at school, this was when I was about 15 years old. And he actually wasn't trying to be unkind. I think perhaps he even had a crush on me. And he, but what he said was, oh, you can always tell when it's Vivian because she walks like a gorilla. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know it was awful. That wasn't the worst thing though about about it. The worst thing was the way that I felt, and the, and the kind of gaslighting that happened because of uh, you know my mom being uh, having NPD. I mean she'd always just tell me oh nonsense or whatever. It, it, the gaslighting was, was was terrible. But when I was fifteen, I had a really really clear insight, and that was that my mother was never going to approve of me. Never. And I must not work for her approval. I must transcend needing my mother's approval. That saved me. I'm very That's a hard thing to do. That. Yeah. Were you, were you out I of the house at that point? No, I was still in the house. I only left um, when I was about 19 or 20 years old. I think, I think when I was 20, I was still in the house. And um, I just, I wanted to do something really badly. And what they did was, uh, I come from a Jewish family. What they did to me was that they sent me off to go to Hebrew school every single afternoon. And then also on Saturday mornings, I had to go to temple. And I had to do all the Jewish stuff. And all the rest of them went to play tennis. And I had to do the Jewish stuff. And it was a Jewish holiday, and, and my family was going to, to visit some relatives that we only ever saw once a year on that holiday. And a boyfriend asked me uh, to go for a walk with him on, the, on Table Mountain. I'm from Cape Town. And I wanted to do it really, really badly. And my mother, she, she did her do-as-you-see-fit number with a big sniff, you know. Do-as-you-see-fit. <laughs> and I just thought, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to do as I see fit because there's no way out other than, than to make up my own mind. And, uh, and that was the turning point for me. I, I don't think I would have survived many more years. Nobody who knows my family, and especially my mom, can understand that I'm not actually in an insane asylum. But very <laughs> sadly, my brother died from all this behavior because he yeah. wrote himself a ghastly script where he was almost murdered, and so it, 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 it's killer. These things that yes. happen in terrible. Yes, yes. I so re- I, I mean I so relate to everything that you're saying, Vivian, because I my mother was the narcissist, and um, and I was raised. She was every other word she said was Jewish. If it, Jewish was her, uh, that was like her claim the to. 
yes. And I went to Hebrew school three days a week for six years. And, um, you know, and then we would go to temple. And I mean, yeah, so I completely get it. Um, and I also know uh, I was one of three. And my sister, I was the youngest, and my sister, um, one of my sisters actually died last year, and I believe it really had a lot to do with her childhood because she was, my mother never looked at her, and my mother never touched her, and I just think it finally just did her in. Yeah, so I get it. It does. It does. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. It does do one in, and that's why I couldn't be touched. If anybody touched me, I jumped because my mother... I have zero recollection of ever sitting on my mother's lap, for example. Oh my gosh. Just nothing. Nothing. I just Did you have she, any siblings? Debbie did you have any siblings? Yes, my brother who who was murdered because of his script that he wrote okay, for himself right. and he was three years older than me. But it's important, Randy, I'm glad you're asking, coming back to that point because because the thing is that he mom, he was my mother's favorite and he was became the buffer for me. I think I survived because he had to absorb this pathology, which was immense and intense. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he just—it was unbelievable. And the thing, the thing with my brother, he was the first gay person to come out of the closet in Cape Town, like oh, wow. you know, like out of the closet in Cape Town. And I tell you what, Granny, my mother stood by him. I mean, she got terribly sick. My parents stood by him. Both of them got terribly sick. My mother lost a huge amount of weight. My father was in and out of the heart specialist because something had gone wrong with his heart. But they came through for him. But he had other other issues. And the, the bad thing was he was he was trans as well. So he was, and in the Freudian sense, this, the trans idea is where you're trying to merge the masculine and feminine um, energies in the home. So the male is dressing up as female. And I can very much see that as applying in our household. My parents fought every single day. Every mm-hmm. single day. And it was violent. It was not it was not like, oh, they're just bickering. It was violent. I mean my dad would get these broken hands and the and the doctors would say, But this is a boxer's injury. What's going oh, on? Oh my gosh. And in those olden days the doctors would arrive still with their black bags and the the thing was that the doctor was my mother's best friend as well. So she'd arrive with a black bag and dispense injections, uh, tranquilizing injections all around, and off she'd go. Oh, my and gosh. It was ridiculous convention. It was nonsense what was going on in our household. Anyway, that kind of fighting all the time, it wrote my brother's script. And, and so he didn't uh, – he, he, he was 37 at the time that he was murdered. But absolutely oh. the script was – Definitely because of my of my parents and their relationship and the way it was playing out. And the reason I know that for sure, you know, the unconscious mind is so powerful, Randy, and it catalogs the information. And boom, there it can come out if you just allow it out of, you know, being suppressed or repressed. And mm-hmm. one day, my mother had come and stayed with us here in the States because, of course, I'm from South Africa. So she came over on a trip and she came and stayed in my house for five weeks. And oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I ever recovered from it in the same way as I never recovered from my childhood in, in, in certain ways. Then, and I don't think I ever recovered from that visit. But I remember writing to my dad and saying, I don't understand how come you haven't killed her. 
And <laughs> then I realized that's where my brother's script came from. Oh, my gosh. Because well, they set up this battle all the time. My parents fought every day, too, but it wasn't physical. But it was, it was so um, terrifying for me as a little girl. So I was my mm-hmm. mother's favorite, and I understand the enmeshment that happens. And I also understand when you're a golden child, the narcissistic parent cannot see that anything's wrong with you, which explains to me why she, even though he came out as gay, she just never, she still, he was her favorite and she just saw right past it because for a narcissistic mother to admit that a child has any flaws means that she has flaws. So my mother would never let me, let me be responsible for anything that I did. Never. It was always somebody else's fault. It was crazy. (laughs) So I get it. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's nice Um, to speak to someone who gets it because because if you haven't experienced it, it's like you're exaggerating. It can't be that bad, but it is that bad. And I got had to get really in touch with how bad it was for me as a child during the pandemic because with the lockdown, I spent a lot of time on my own. Well, when you spend time on your own, your mind starts throwing out information at you. And that's what it was all about my childhood. And uh, I, I realized it's very it important so because you're, yeah, and your childhood definitely affects all your adult relationships so this is um this is what i've been doing for years is working with people and helping them get through um heal actually from these horrific childhoods and also people who have gotten into adult relationships and are just devastated when they come out of them because um personality disordered people like narcissists and and i and um uh, borderline, they can destroy you. So, so I, I can, this can. is what I, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. this is what, so this is what I do. <laughs> um, yes. And, 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 and if I can just, if I can just say that that's the most terrible imprint on me is that all my female friends have ended up, it's turned out that they've been narcissists because I haven't been able to tell that that's not okay. And it's yes. also what it's the energy because you know narcissists can be fun in the beginning, really fun. They've got energy and they and you know and they seem to be so positive and relate to you positively. And I didn't realize that those were warning signs in actual fact. And so that's where I felt at home. Well, of course, because in my home was this narcissistic borderline mother, and so of course that's what I'm going to feel at home and familiar with. And I had to stop making friends because I was the target of all these narcissistic people and I would give them so much and then they would do what narcissists do the whole abandonment uh, you know cycle and everything so it's it's happened to me one too many times and I have I have taken myself also therapy because I don't want the last part of my life to be imprinted with this awful pattern anymore Yes, and and it absolutely can be healed. Um, and you're um, you're a psychotherapist, right? Or cl- you're you have you're trained in clinical psychology. I am. I'm trained in clinical psychology, but I I never uh, practiced. I never practiced as a clinical psychologist. I never finished that internship and became a fully licensed clinical psychologist because I switched over to becoming an Alexander Technique teacher. 
And okay. that was better for teaching is better for me as a as a practice and a, as a profession because uh, I can um, I can move I can engage because oh we never finished saying with the Alexander technique we do the chair work and then I put the person on the table and we work with the person on the table and I'm actually active and I'm helping the person and I can be more um, proactive and not and, and not as passive as as some therapeutic uh, um, dynamics require and it's better for me and and also it, it, you know when i realized how toxic my childhood was it is better for me to do the alexander technique than to be a clinical psychologist uh, it, mm. it, it's definitely been healthier yeah. for me well you know the thing is vivian that um in um I have many uh, psychologists that come to me for healing because this is not something that you don't learn um, the abuse of the victim um, in, in school or in, in in your training at all. It's not taught. I mean, you may be able to recognize the personality disorder, but you don't recognize the, the syndrome of the victim. So, you know, so most people, um, so I have several therapists that come to me. To, I, can, for me I, to... I can believe that. I can believe mm-hmm. that because when, when I was sort of thinking about this uh, conversation that we were going to have, and I thought, oh, I wonder if it's going to be therapeutic for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I can say it is. It is because you clearly understand. And that's the first thing that one needs is that somebody actually believes you and understands because, you know, Randy, when I was a child, and I'd go to friends' homes and so on, and people would speak to me about my mother, and I would say, no, I hate my mother. And I was just a child being honest. And they'd say, oh, don't say that. <gasps> Ooh, you know, big drama. And it's just like, I, I, I just didn't, I was so confused. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand why anyone liked their mother, because I assumed that my mother was just the same as all other mothers. And then, you know, when I had my own children, horrible. Horrible, because then I became the mother, and for me, the word mother wasn't a good word, and it wasn't a good role, and it wasn't a good relationship to be in, and now I was the mother, and that was hard. Wow. So so it's nice. It's nice to talk to someone who gets it, because I feel a difference as I'm talking to you. I feel that my words are falling into understanding. I am being understood. And I'm being heard in a very different way. And I think that that's an incredible service that you're giving to people. And even to me in this moment, I can feel something reorganizing on the inside of me. Because that's what happens, isn't it? When you get that to validate, thing yes. And when you get validated, yes. that your experience yes. is not crazy. And, um, yeah, I wrote a book called Close Encounters of the Worst Kind. And you yes. probably really get a lot out of this book uh, because I talk about all the relationships and all the dynamics, and I explain so much. Um, people love this book, so yeah, you may you may get some uh, get benefit out of no, close encounters. Worth kind. Um, so I'm definitely going to read the book, but not only not only because for myself, but because I work as a healer. And, you know, people don't realize when they're encountering narcissistic personality disorder. And I need, to, I need to be able to refer them to a book such as yours to be able to say, now, look, you need right. to understand what's going on here because, because of this, that, and the other. 
And so for that reason, I need to be able to give people that resource. And, of course, I must read it first myself. So it's good. And, right. um, and the other thing that people run up against is passive-aggressive behavior. And that's mm-hmm. another thing that I have to, in, in, you know, explain to people and to keep explaining, keep explaining over and over again. It's very hard to identify when you're being subjected to both narcissistic personality disorder and passive-aggressive disorder. They're both mm-hmm. very, very hard they are hard, very hard. Yeah, it's um, it it changes who who the child is, and um, you know, this is the work I do all day, every day. I have you know clients all day, every day that come to me, but um, you know, but they're able to heal very quickly because, like you said, when when you get recognized and validated, that's half of the battle. Having somebody acknowledge exactly. that absolutely well, exactly would you. That's mm-hmm. exactly what was missing. As a child, that's what was missing. I was never acknowledged and validated. I didn't really exist in, as an entity in my own right because, of course, for a narcissistic mother, the child is just an extension of self. And my mother didn't like women. She liked men. So my brother was male, and that was her, her prize extension of self. And I was just sort of an, you know like an accessory, and we were one unit the children. So if my brother got something, then the children had it, so I didn't need it. And if my Mm. brother had a talent or gift, then the children already had it, so obviously I didn't have it. So my mother used to tell me I didn't have a sense of humor. It's lucky that I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they don't, narcissists don't like people having fun. They they resent it because they can't do it on their own. They have no ability to feel joy on their own. And so when they see that someone is happy, it really pisses them off. And so what they do is they try to squash your happiness and your sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. So yes. How is Mm-hmm. When I was three years old, I'd say something out loud. And when I was five years old, I'd say something out loud. So I got labeled as tactless because, you know, obviously when you're three and five years old, you should know what to say and what not to say. All kinds of uh, very weird. Well, exactly. And you know what? You know, it's really interesting, Vivian, that um, I've been doing this show for over 11 years. And when uh, I had a friend who had a podcast and he said to me, Randy, you really should do your own podcast. Um, I said, I hate the sound of my voice and I'm afraid of what's going to come out of me because I grew up in a, such a dysfunctional home. And my father, who was not the narcissist, he was the enabler. Um, every time he opened his mouth, he said something stupid. So I had this thing where I'm not going to talk because I'm afraid to say something stupid. So when I first started the show, I would write every single word that I would talk about. It would be 10 pages of copy, and I would read it because I was so afraid if I didn't that I would slip up and sound stupid. So, But I forced myself to push forward through this, and um, it, it, it has enabled me to gain my voice back. And I realized that I don't say stupid things. <laughs> so um, it's that been a great, it's, yeah, it's part of my healing. It really, it really has been part of my healing. Yeah. Um, so, it's interesting yeah, and, because my, 
my mother's borderline personality showed up in her voice. She was so loud. And she would snore loudly, literally everything would shake from her voice. And mm. so I, I pinched my voice down into this monotone and I never liked my voice. I can totally relate to what you said. And you know, that's why the Alexander technique is really interesting because it's all about voice and restoring the voice. It not only restored my voice, it also restored my IQ because I got very damaged. And my IQ went up 20 points. From becoming really? a Alexander teacher, getting my time wow. that way. Yes, because I was so emotionally messed up, and it showed up in I couldn't sing, and my name is Singer. That's my maiden name. I was born Vivian Singer, and I couldn't I can't, can't, couldn't sing in tune, and I couldn't keep a rhythm, and my math capacity dropped quite significantly, and I was just I was completely wrecked, both uh, you know intellectually and physically. And so the Alexander Technique rescued me from all of that. What an extraordinary method it is. It's absolutely amazing, and it saved me. Now, I always think of it as like, a, you know, these experiences that we have in our life makes a very beautiful bonsai tree, and that's just how it is. And I'm very, very, very pleased with how I've managed to navigate all of this in my life. But, but my feelings lag, you know. The way I feel is still... Uh, you know, a work in progress. And so I'm going to continue with that. As I say, you know, after with that pandemic insights, I realized I need to go back into psychotherapy. Of course, I did have psychotherapy in my 20s. I wouldn't have been able to get on with my life without that kind of intervention and help. But um, I realized it's time to go back and get more and also to engage in this exact way like what we're doing here now. I need to engage. I need to recognize. I need to own this. I need to accept that, that this has been a very painful thing for me. Yes. And, um, you know, it's people think that we grow out of our childhood pain, but we do not grow out of our childhood pain. That child no. is still there and it has to be healed. It's so important because it yes. will affect yes. It will affect every single thing that we do. And I know um, what I notice is when you grow up in a home like this, you get to, when you get to be, say, 18 years old and you're supposed to be going out on your own and you're supposed to be growing in life, you're watching your friends sort of move ahead and succeed and make goals and everything like that. But the child in these homes, they plummet at that point because they have no tools for living. Hmm. That 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 I can see. That I can see. But I'm very fortunate that that didn't that didn't happen to me. I was just very eager. I decided when I was 11 to become a clinical psychologist. A teacher told me. The teacher said, "Go and look at this article in this magazine about clinical psychology." It was a vocational and career um, magazine for children. And I went, "That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to be a clinical <laughs> psychologist." And That's so wonderful. I made that decision. 11 and, and by the time I was 18 I was in, already in college and studying and then and part of us my psychology training so in South Africa it's a different system it's more like the British system than the American system so you do three years undergrad and then you do a specialist year and that's that was a clinical psychology year for me and in that specialist year we were put into groups and one day I role-played my mother 
because I, I was talking about what goes on at, in my, in, at home and everybody sort of stopped. It was a group of about 18 of us, the, the, all the clinical and counseling students were together in this group. And the whole group just stopped and went, Vivian, what? And they got me to role, someone role played me and I role played my mother. Wow. And the power that I had, I have never been that powerful as the, that role-playing my mother, and I realized that she had me in every possible double bind. If I did A, I should have done B. If I did B, I should have done A. If I did A and B to CYA, that cover my ass, then I should have done C. <laughs> she was always something else that should have been done. Never, yep. ever did I, could I get it right. And when I realized that that's what was going on, I went home. And I told my parents I'm moving out. And so that was when I was 20 years old. And I was already in my fourth year of studying psychology. Hmm. But it took that role play for me to understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I understand what you're saying. I sometimes describe it as ever-changing hoops that you have to jump through. It's just never the same. It's just never, the, there's no consistency. You just don't know where you stand at any given time. Um, so, so Vivian, you say that you've been studying the effects of the words yes and no on the nervous system for many years and that there's a distinct difference. So tell us about that. That's interesting. Indeed. Uh, this is an insight that I had recently that I got into words about, also during the pandemic, about two years ago, I realized that when I work with people, because I work as an Alexander teacher, but I also work as a healer now. And um, when I work with people, I realized that what I'm aiming for is to get their nervous systems to a place where they are saying yes to their own lives. They're saying yes to themselves. Because people are very... Uh, caught up in in how they've been socialized, they're very caught up in what they've been taught. Like that's what we're talking about. And sometimes those imprints are not the healthy imprints. We need to re-imprint ourselves with something more positive. And when I'm doing healing work, I'm looking at all those kind of dynamics. And I realize that that's what I'm working towards and that I know when things are going right is when they are beginning to do what makes them happy and that being able to make yourself happy depends on you befriending yourself and being able to say yes to yourself yes to your own life yes to what you want now this is not about being persuaded into a yes by someone else this is a different kind of yes where your body mind and spirit so your physical psychological and spiritual layers and energetically, so you, they all come together to agree, yes, this is what I want. Because what we need to understand about ourselves is that we're split. We've been split up. Our unconscious mind is wanting this. Our conscious mind is wanting that. Our higher self or our superego, which, you know, whichever construct and system you want to use, is saying something else and so we have inner conflict almost all the time and in that moment of allaying the, con the inner conflict and bringing the different layers into that alignment that is a yes and you can work back towards that yes in order to bring yourself into alignment or you can bring a, bring you can begin with the yes and work backwards and say well what will deliver a yes and then you work backwards from there 
And I, I've been noticing that, and that, but I notice it also, you see, where, how it came about and came into my own consciousness was when I realized that if I was in conversation with anybody, working with a client or doing, just doing something for myself in my own life, going into the bank or the store or whatever, if I said yes to people, I had a better experience. So I started saying the word yes to people in order to... Um, in, in, in order to get a smoother process in my own life. And then I realized, oh, this is the key for all of us is to learn how to be saying yes as frequently as possible because the word yes has a profound effect on our nervous system. And, you know, when you think about the word no, when you think about a, a, a baby and the first time you say no to a baby, well, I, this is with my own children, the first time I said no to them, and of course you have to say no to them because otherwise they stick their fingers in the socket or something. The first time you say no to them, they wail. They go, ah, you know, as if the most terrible thing has happened. And I said, well, the word no does need to be used very excellently to teach. Don't do that. It can, you know, that's a fire. It can burn you. And But the word yes, we need to learn how to engage that word for our own good as well. And that's right. the construct way of doing it. is It's very, it's very important. So I, I, when I get, like I get an email request or somebody asks me something on the phone, I think, how can I say yes to this? Because if I say yes to them, I find the yes. I find the yes in the situation. Because then we've got our common ground. And, you know, I hate to talk politics, but if we could find a way to start saying yes to people that don't agree with us, and they can find a way to start saying yes to us, we'd have a different situation on our hands because you find your point of agreement and then you can work from there. And I've just found that that is a better way to go and it takes less time and it's more pleasant and you get such a great constructive product or result. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> and But we have to... <laughs> but, but those who have grown up in these environments... Um, have, you know, I think you have to have a boundary system first before you begin that to say yes, yes to yourself. everything. Yes, you say that, yes to yourself. See, I had to learn about boundaries because with my mother being borderline as well as narcissistic, my understanding of boundaries was terrible and I was doing too much for others. I was doing the weak yes. There's a, there's a disempowered yes and there's an empowered yes. The empowered yes is when you say yes to yourself. And yes to yourself is setting a positive and constructive boundary. And that is what we aren't able to do because a narcissist parent will not let us have a boundary. So that is a big yes when we realize, oh, yes, I can set a boundary. That's not, that means I can say yes to saying no to someone else. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did when I realized I mustn't seek approval from my mother. I was saying no to my mother and yes to myself. Okay, that's that makes sense. That really mm-hmm. does, and I'm glad you clarified that. Absolutely, because yes can be dangerous. It can be yes. dangerous. I'm not talking about the dangerous yes. I am not talking about saying yes to another person. I am talking about saying yes to the self. Okay. Okay. Hmm. 
Very interesting. So um, how long did it take you? Uh, so you became a student of the Alexander Technique first before you began to teach it? It's all very confusing, the terminology. So the word student in, in, the, in the U.S. means someone who has Alexander lessons from an Alexander teacher and a person who trains to become an Alexander teacher, that's a trainee. That's the, that's okay. the terminology I came up with. In South Africa and England, the word is pupil and then student. You know, it's the way the word student is used in the U.S. This causes a bit of confusion in the English language for teachers and so on from other countries. So a student of the Alexander Technique is someone who has lessons in the Alexander Technique and a trainee is someone who trains as a teacher. And the training course for an Alexander teacher is three years, 1,600 hours, three years, um, preferably five days a week. It has become a bit unrealistic um, for most training courses to operate at a five-day-a-week thing, but you have to do a minimum of 12 to 15 hours per week of training because you really are retraining the neuromuscular system and Alexander teacher needs to have a lot of insight into the Alexander technique through their own being. You can't study it theoretically and then explain it to someone. You have to transmit the information of the Alexander technique from your own neuromuscular system directly into the neuromuscular system of the student. Um, or I just use the word client because I do healing work as well and so, you know, Anyway, that's how it's done. You ha so you can't do it unless you've done it and you've really thoroughly experienced it in yourself and you really work through a lot of stuff. You know, the Alexander Technique is the closest profession to it is psychoanalysis. And the closest um, athletic activity to the Alexander Technique is actually horse riding. Because really? in horse riding... So the, the uh, horse rider's body and mind is communicating absolutely directly with the horse, and they are working together in one way. And that's what you do when you're an Alexander teacher. You've got to get your neuromuscular system and the neuromuscular system of the student to be working together and harmonizing and uh, transmitting information back and forth very successfully. So it, it's quite complex. It's but. But, but Randy, when one talks about the Alexander Technique, you know what, which part is missing. It's the most extraordinary experience, the feeling of it. You know, when your muscles are tense, they feel heavy, and your perception of self is so heavy. When you feel heavy, then that's emotional as well as physical, you see. You can't really split those. And then because we experience emotion through our bodies and, uh, and, we, and so therefore our bodies register all emotion and everything's there locked in into the body. So you start to open up that muscle contraction and oh my goodness, the flow that happens and you literally feel lighter, lighter as if you can walk on air and you lengthen out and you, just, and you start to just think differently and function differently and the world looks like a different place. Well, how do you describe all that feeling? And when you do, otherwise you're saying, oh, it's about addressing habitual patterns of functioning. It sounds as boring as boring as possible. It is the most extraordinary, fantastic experience to be different in yourself. And it's quick. You know, I can guarantee people that if they come in and have an appointment with me, within 45 minutes they will feel completely different. 
and they do. Amazing. Amazing. I love it. Are there um, how how uh, in the United States um, is are there teachers pretty much in all the states, or is it not really? There really aren't that many. You know, I'm not sure, but it really has spread, and and most states do seem to have. Alexander teachers, and if they don't have a resident Alexander teacher, they usually have a teacher who's coming in once in a while, you know, with on some regularity to give appointments. It, it seems to have filtered through. When we came uh, to the States in, in 1991, the teachers were pretty much concentrated on the coast. But for example, we came from South Africa. When I wanted to have Alexander lessons, I was really lucky. There was only one teacher in the country, and she was in Cape Town, and she was actually across the road from my high school. We had really? people sitting wondering things that I wanted to help me with my posture, and it was literally across the road. And I was, and I was sitting there thinking, there's got to be something somewhere in the world that can help me with this. And I was pathetically thinking, oh, there must be something. And I was thinking of the Alexander Technique, but I didn't have a name. But it turned out there was one teacher in the country, and she was across the road from my high school where I was having that thought. Anyway, she trained some of us. We trained more people. Then we came out to Cincinnati where there were no Alexander teachers, and we have a training course, and we trained a bunch of teachers. And that's how it's worked, and it has spread through the country. And there is a national organization called uh, AMSAT, and they have a, a website, amsatonline.org, and they will be able to say where there are Alexander teachers. There's listings of all the teachers in the country, and that's where you can look it up and see if there's a teacher near you. And is this something that can be taught virtually, you know, like over Zoom, or not really? It's better to be uh, in live no, with that person? Yeah, there are teachers doing that. And actually with the pandemic, my clients were so miserable and I said, all right, we'll make an effort. And I did figure out ways to teach it um, remote and using the, the students' hands instead of my own hands and talking them through step by step. But honestly, it is actually better to to get the hands-on experience and to be given the experience. And if you can't, get that on a regular basis, then you can supplement maybe with remote style like on Zoom or whatever. Because once you understand the principles and you've had some experience of it, that can be beneficial. So, for example, I have a client who's an anesthesiologist, and um, when the pandemic struck, he was in line for helping people with the uh, ventilator. And, and as a family, their whole family was very, very sure. They said, Billion, I can't manage, I can't manage all this without your help and I said we'll find a way and we did and we got it figured out and I did work with him and others remotely and but then also my healing work that I can do remotely so I've been able to sort of match you know work with the two together and help people I prefer just to do the healing work via remote the Alexander technique I prefer to put my hands on people but I can adapt a little bit and I can help people a little bit uh, even remotely because it's a way of thinking and it's a way of using your consciousness and the the learning how to inhibit is a, a, thoughtful, a thoughtful process and the whole thing of the Alexander technique is what you think is what you get. I mean that is the, in a nutshell what the Alexander technique is because there's no separation between thinking something and your body enacting it. So for example if you are walking down a set of stairs and you think 
there's another step, you will crash into the ground when you reach the bottom of the flight of stairs because your entire nervous system and your neuromuscular system, all of you, has prepared for the step that you thought was there. And that, you know, that's an, an example that we all know. And But everything that we think is registering physically. And so you can help people with their thinking. I can talk to people on the phone. I can use via Zoom. So I, you can approach it, but that full-on experience with the, with the hands of an Alexander teacher, a properly qualified person, that, that you can't really substitute with anything else. But it, as I said before, it's one of the aspects. That doesn't mean you have to not access the other aspects. Of course you should, because it's all helpful and all important. Yes, you're so right. So, um, so your book is wonderful. It really goes over everything, and it reminds me of so many of the things that I learned. Um, one of the first things she had me do was, was put my pocketbook down and then pick it up. <laughs> and she showed me how, how wrong I was doing that and then how wrong I was wearing it. So, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yes, yes. Simple, simple little it's things. It was a, moment, isn't it? This is like, it's oh, amazing. you mean there's a better way to, to yeah. do it? I remember one person saying to me, uh, I asked her what work she does. She was, this was back in South Africa. Uh, and she said, oh, I, I, I go in and I tell people how to run their businesses, if you can believe such a thing. And I said, of course I can believe such a thing. I teach people how to stand and sit. <laughs> right, stand and sit, exactly. We had a good laugh. We had a good laugh because, yeah. it, it, and then when I also actually at one point became a taekwondo instructor, and I remember saying to the ta- the head of the school, I said, oh, I'm not sure that I'll be any good at this. He said, Vivian, you can see when people aren't lying down correctly, what makes you think you would that's so funny. That's so funny. So, um, Vivian, do you have a website? Do you have a website? Yes, I do. It's chaperone.com. Let me spell it for you because uh, it's hard to spell my name. It's S-C-H-A-P for Peter, E-R-A, dot com. And that is an umbrella website that says all the different work that I do. And it hooks into and links into all the different things that uh, that we do and the other websites that we have and so on. So again, chaperone.com. And the way to remember is I'm a teacher, like school. School has a C in it. Chaperone has a C in it. S-C-H-A-P-E-R-A.com. Okay. And you have a YouTube channel as well. That one is what's called the Chaperone channel. And that one is just a very little one at the moment. I have a YouTube channel called Crystal Surgery and Crystal Healing Techniques. And that's where you can see quite a lot of information. But there there are some Alexander videos on the Chaperone channel as well. Okay, great. Wow. Okay. It's been so wonderful talking to you. And, um, you know. Yeah, and we should probably continue this conversation between us. But... um, (laughs) But yes, yes. But it's been it's really been wonderful. Thank you so much. Very special. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a have a very nice day. Take care. Bye now. Bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at brandyfine.com. 
May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.